0: Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Paul Shapiro, and he's author of the national bestseller, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World, and it's published by Simon & Schuster Gallery Books in 2018. He's also... The CEO of the Better Meat Company, a four-time TEDx speaker, and the host of the Business for Good podcast, and a longtime leader in food sustainability. Paul is an authority on food and he's gonna tell us about his food. Now, Paul, what's wrong with eating meat like we do now?
1: Alan, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks so much. And I love the question that you're starting us out with because Lots of people enjoy eating meat, but there are some downsides and what we're, we're trying to do at companies like the Better Meat Co. is essentially give people the meat experience that they want without all those downsides. So to answer your question directly, Alan, you know, look, the planet is not getting any bigger. Humanity's footprint on the planet is getting a lot bigger, but the planet itself is not getting any bigger. And one of the primary ways that we leave that footprint is through our food print, principally in the amount of meat that we eat. It just takes a lot of land a lot of water, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and more to raise and slaughter all of these billions of animals we're raising for food. And if we could find ways to either just eat fewer animals or eat meat that doesn't have to come from animals, then we could save a lot of land and water and so on. Not to mention the animal welfare concerns that there are as well. So, The problem is that even knowing just how much land and water and other resources it takes to produce meat the way that we do it today, meat demand continues to go up, not down. And so the real key is to satisfy humanity's meat tooth, so to speak, without the need to raise and slaughter animals. And that's what we're trying to do is give people their meat and and, uh, let them eat it without the need to uh, do all the harm that we're doing in the process.
0: You know, it sounds like we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. You know, I tried (laughs) those better than beef burgers when they came out. And frankly, they didn't taste like beef at all. They were quite different than than anything I'd ever tasted. Is that your experience or what are you finding now?
1: My experience is that in the last five years, there has been a real revolution in the product development of these um, animal-free meats. And so the type of products that you are referring to are really what's called plant-based meat. So that's where you take peas or soybeans and turn them into things that taste like animal. And those products have gotten dramatically more meat-like in their experience in the last few years. Um, they have other companies though, that instead of trying to make plants taste like animals, they're going straight to the animal kingdom and they are using animal cells rather than whole animals. So they're growing the cells of individual animals and making real animal meat without the animal. Then you have companies like what the Better Meat Co. does, where we don't use, um, we're not going to the plant kingdom or to the animal kingdom, we're going to the fungi kingdom and using little microscopic fungi and subjecting them to a special kind of fermentation that really does create a very convincing meat-like experience that enables the consumer to enjoy that taste and that texture that they're craving without the need to torment animals in the process.
0: Well, now that sounds like we're going down a better path. I mean, those beans and stuff. Sorry, they just didn't cut the mustard. They just didn't <laughs> have the yeast. And, and the high temperatures and so on that they had to process those things at couldn't be good for the byproducts that were coming out. Um,
1: you know, it's interesting you say that, Alan, because, you know, to get something like a pea to taste like an animal, you do have to subject it to some pretty high temperature and a process that's known as extrusion. Uh, What we at the Better Meat Co. do, though, is a type of fermentation that does not involve high temperature. It does not involve much processing at all, actually. Uh, What we can do is take potatoes and feed them to our little microscopic fungi, and they eat it. And just in the same way that a cow eats grass and converts that into steak, our little tiny fungi consume potatoes, and they turn it into something that really has a very convincing meat-like texture. And so you don't have to process it. Uh, you just have to subject it to fermentation, which is, of course, an age-old natural process. And that in and of itself creates that meat-like experience.
0: Well, we all know about fermentation. I mean, that's how we make our whiskey and our, and our other types of hard liquor. And certainly it works for that. So there's no reason yeah. to believe it wouldn't work for something like this as well. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right,
1: Alan. And it does work. This isn't theoretical. We are doing it. So in Sacramento, the Better Meat Co. is running a fermentation facility that creates really wonderful mycoprotein that really does have a, a meat-like uh, experience for the final consumer. And you're right. People have been using fermentation for thousands of years to transform foods. So think about like the difference between eating grain and getting beer. Very different foods, but it's just done through fermentation. Well, that's the same thing that what we're doing, uh, we're running a different kind of fermentation that can help transform potatoes into something that really looks like animal meat. And unlike a cow, though, who takes more than a year of feeding her before she is slaughtered, we are able to run a fermentation that takes only mere hours, only hours uh, in order to actually get that final product.
0: That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And that's got to be good for the environment as well, because of all the byproducts and everything else that go on the cattle industry.
1: That's exactly right. So the number one cause of deforestation on the planet is uh, raising animals for food, either cutting down the forest to provide pasture land for them, or growing crops to feed all of those farm animals. And so the number one reason the Amazon rainforest is being deforested is for, for farm animals to be able to eat more meat. For us to be able to eat more meat, um, and it just takes a lot of resources to do all that. Like, why? Why not become more efficient? It's kind of like Alan. If you think about film, you know, if you rewind the clock thirty years and you think about how we used to have to wait for hours or days even to get our film developed. Right? You'd have to send in your negatives and then get back a uh, thing of film. Well, get back a thing of photographs. Well, you know, now we get our photographs instantly, right? We don't have to wait hours or days. We get them instantaneously, but it's still the same experience, right? We're still capturing your memories. There's not a different... There's still photographs. Well, I think the same is going to be so with meat. We'll still have the same experience, but it'll be done far more rapidly and with fewer resources such that anybody would rather do it in the same way that nearly everybody today takes only digital photos. Nearly everybody in the future are going to be way more efficient about the types of meat that we're eating because we're going to be able to produce so much more meat with so many fewer resources in so much less time.
0: So how, how close are you to getting a commercially viable product right now?
1: Well, we currently sell – so we have a pilot facility that enables us to sell products to companies for them to do R&D testing. It's not enough to let them uh, you know, put products in thousands of supermarkets shelves yet, but it is enough that we're partnered with companies like Hormel Foods, the makers of SPAM, where they're doing uh, joint development with us to create products for Hormel that they will really like using our mycoprotein. And so now the key goal is for us to go from having a pilot plant to having a full-scale production plant and then go on from there.
0: So, so so it's, it's in the works, I guess, is the, is what you're telling me right now. It's all part of this evolution you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly right. We need to
1: build a fermenter the size of an office building. It's not sufficient for us to have a pilot scale fermenter where we can produce only thousands of pounds of product. We need to be able to produce millions of pounds of product. And that's what we're going to go for, to build a full scale production plant where, you know, where we're running vast quantities in our fermentation so that we can actually scale up and start making a dent in this problem so that we can reduce humanity's reliance on animals for food.
0: Okay, so that's got to be an expensive process to get that all put together. I mean, I I live and breathe in a province called Alberta, where we have something called oil sands, where oil is trapped with sand, so they can get the oil out. There's more oil deposits here than Saudi Arabia, but it's a very expensive process to separate the sand from the oil. And that takes a lot of dollars to put those plants together. I think that would be probably true of your plant as well. Well, separating oil
1: from sand is very technologically difficult to do. What we are doing certainly requires capital expenditures to build the fermenter, but it is nowhere near the technical difficulty of separating oil from sand. So we are in a much more enviable position than the people who are looking at the tar sands, uh, because we're able to run our fermentation in a way that takes very little money once the plant is built. The operating expenses are nowhere near the operating expenses of other types of technologies, uh, like what, <clears throat> like what you're referring to. So in in the end, uh, I, I think we will have a far more scalable and acceptable. Uh, technology platform than some of the others that you're referring to.
0: Cool. So so this is something that's rather unique. You're growing. You're not actually, you're fermenting. You're not growing meat from animal cells like some of the other process. How does your process different from, is different from that?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I'm very honored, Alan, that you mentioned my book, Clean Meat, because I talk about this in the book. And, you know, you can either go to the animal kingdom where you grow real animal meat from cells, where you take a biopsy, like a little sesame seed sized biopsy, let's say from a cow, and you can then uh, take some of the stem cells that are in that tiny little biopsy and grow that into literally thousands of pounds of meat. So that's one way. Another way, though, is to go to not to the animal kingdom, but to the fungi kingdom. And what we're doing is going to take like these little microscopic fungi, little spores that you can't even see with your naked eye, and we put them on top of potatoes in a type of fermentation that enables them to start eating and growing. And their own mass, like their own body, so to speak, is what we end up harvesting hours later. So they eat all of the potatoes and everything else that we feed them, and then they are ready to be harvested. They're at the end of their natural life there, and they're ready to be harvested, and they Get, uh, they essentially get dried into a granule that we then sell. So you can then get that granule. And while it isn't actual animal meat, it is the same experience of animal meat. And so just in the same way that you know a digital photograph isn't literally a print photograph, but it's the same experience of getting a, to capture your memory, we are going to provide a way to enjoy the experience of meat without the need for animals.
0: So, so can you engineer this process so you can grow chicken and you could grow uh, pork and you can grow turkey and you can grow beef?
1: Uh, not only can we, Alan, we do. So we can make all different types of products, steaks, chicken breast, crab cakes, fish sticks and more.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So all fish, all meat products can be made by this fermentation process.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Well, that's that's quite phenomenal. And I, I'm sure the vast majority of people do not know about that and, and do not, they haven't even been able to conceive of that because they're still stuck on that better than beef burger that I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> well, I think that those, uh, those burgers have gotten better in recent years, and I think that they do a pretty good job. But we are the next generation here. Uh, We're going, instead of using plant protein isolates like pea protein or soy protein, using whole food from the fungi kingdom enables us to create a much more convincing meat experience than what can be done otherwise. And so we're particularly enthusiastic about the power of fermentation to create new categories of food. And if you think about like other types of new foods, you know, imagine, let's say, um, like cheese, you know, before a few thousand years ago, nobody was eating cheese. People had been drinking milk for long before then, but nobody had figured out how to make milk curdle and turn it into cheese. Well, after people did that, then all these new foods get invented Gouda, Brie, Swiss, you know, cheddar, and so on, right? And those are foods that nobody had ever enjoyed before. Nobody had ever craved them. Nobody had ever fantasized about them. Nobody ever thought about these foods. And now they're part of the daily diet of a huge portion of humanity. Well, I think through the power of fermentation, we're going to be able to create other types of new categories of food that are just as pleasurable as cheese, if not more so. And so we can create foods that not just mimic the meat experience, but actually improve upon it and have more novel, interesting culinary experiences than what humanity has ever dreamt of before.
0: So so this is your vision for the future, is that uh, what would you see what would happen to all the beef producers or pork producers or... Big chicken farms that we have now, what would happen to all those?
1: Well, if you go back to the film wars, you can look and see what happened. You know, did all of the film companies go out of business? No. Canon still manufactures digital cameras now. So instead of manufacturing negatives that are made out of gelatin, now they manufacture digital cameras. And the same is so here, you know, there are meat companies that are... Very resistant to change, and they are probably going to be more like the Kodak, because we all know what happened, right? Kodak and Canon were buying supremacy in the uh, in the film market, and Kodak was concerned that digital was going to cannibalize its core business, whereas Canon said we're going to embrace it. And in the end, Kodak went bankrupt, and Canon became the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. And there are some meat producers who say, "Hey, I want to be Canon. I don't want to be Kodak," and they recognize that the future is going to be a different kind of meat. There are other meat producers that you know, say, hey, we're going to do it the way we've always done it and keep on slaughtering animals. And I think that those are the companies that will fail. So some will do well, some will fail, but innovation continues to be the driving factor in industry, not just in food, but in film and others. You know, it's kind of like if you look at, um, you know, the, the war between Netflix and Blockbuster, you know, what happened is that Blockbuster refused to innovate. They had their head in the sand. And in the end, Netflix won out. And so Blockbuster went under and Netflix now, you know, serves us nearly all the content that people are consuming. So uh, there will be changes in the economy. Uh, There will be winners and losers, but those who embrace innovation are going to be on the winning side. And innovation means divorcing animals from meat production.
0: It's interesting. Again, I live in a land that has a lot of beef producers and a lot of those other producers that I'm talking about. You know, we the traditional history of the prairies has been large cattle farms.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the same thing happened with tobacco. You know, you had areas uh, in the United States, at least, that had been dominated by tobacco production for literally centuries, even going back before the United States when it was a, in, in the colonial times uh, where tobacco had been grown for centuries there. And as people gradually stopped smoking, that land had to be repurposed for other things. And the tobacco growers had to switch and they had to grow other things. And so in the same way, let's say cattle producers will still they'll still have to produce food. I mean, we still need food. You know, even for fermentation, you have to feed your microbes something. Right. It's not just to happen out of thin air. And you so you still need food. You just need different types of inputs.
0: So the preferred food for microbes is potatoes.
1: Uh, really, anything starchy, Alan. So you could use potatoes, you could use sugar, you could use rice, you can use lots of things. Um, but it just depends, uh, you know. But our, our microbes are particularly efficient at converting uh, high starch foods into high protein foods.
0: Okay. And what type, what phylum, genera are these microbes part of? Uh, uh, that's just to educate some of our educated listeners out there. Sure. So if you think about
1: um, the fungi kingdom, there's a group of fungi that are known as the filamentous fungi. And there are a number of species and a number of genera within the filamentous fungi world that you can utilize and, and, and harness through the power of fermentation to make foods that really have an animal meat like texture. And that's what we specialize in using those filamentous fungi in order to create a meat experience.
0: And how did you stumble on this?
1: Well, I have long been interested in the sustainability problem of animal agriculture, that it just takes so many resources to produce uh, food from animals compared to using plants or fungi. And I have long thought, well, plants are great, but fungi are more meat-like oftentimes. I mean, mushrooms have a meatier texture than plants for a reason. Fungi are just a lot closer to animals than they are to plants. And so if, mushrooms are more meat-like, but they don't have much protein, is there a way to use not the mushrooms themselves, but what's called mycelium, which is the root-like structure underneath the fungi? And there are a number of companies that have been pioneers in this space. One of them is called Corn, that's Q-U-O-R-N, where they have really shown that you can actually ferment various fungi to make really good products. Now, I don't think their product tastes necessarily like meat, but I do think it's good. And that was an inspiration to me uh, as well.
0: That's cool. So, so how long have you been working in this field for, Paul? Uh,
1: so I started the Better Meat Co. in uh, toward the beginning of 2018, but I had written the book Clean Meat before that, and uh, I had been working as a lobbyist in food sustainability issues uh, since the early 2000s. So it's been about two decades in this field for me, but as an entrepreneur, it's been about three and a half years.
0: Cool. That's interesting. Now, what sort of kickback are you getting from those people that still want to be in that yesterday world of, of meats and huh. chicken and beef? And uh, how? what sort of flack do you get on your daily life?
1: <laughs> well, I, I do think that there are some folks who want to preserve the status quo and they'll do things like try to pass laws in various states or even countries to ban these foods from being called meat or burgers, et cetera. So, you know, if you say, hey, this is plant-based beef, they don't want you to be able to say that, right? They they want you to have to call it something other than plant-based beef. Um, I don't really think that anybody's confused by that term, plant-based beef, but uh, that's a debate that is being had uh, throughout legislatures and uh, around the world. Um, so that's one type of uh, blowback that you get on these type of things. But overall, I think most people who aren't partisans on the issue just think it's really cool. You know, most people eat meat not because animals were slaughtered for it, but really in spite of that fact. And in the same way that when you turn on a light switch, you're not sitting there thinking, you know, is this light coming from fossil fuels? Is it coming from renewable energy? Like you just want light, right? You just want an illuminated room. I think many people, when they eat meat, They're not sitting there thinking, oh, I'm so glad an animal was slaughtered for this. They are just thinking, I like the way this tastes. And most people, if you give them a food that tastes good and is cost effective for them, are going to be
0: quite happy to eat it. I I get you, Paul. And I I understand where you're coming from. As I said, this is new science for me. And I think the listener has to take it all in and and listen to it and, and feel where they're comfortable with it. You know, new science is always a threatening thing because it's it's replacing things that they know, and it's a different world.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is a different world, and it's going to keep on changing. As you know, Alan, the only constant has changed, and one of the big changes that we're going to see in the next few decades is a uh, reduced reliance on animals for food. And we we used to rely on animals for labor quite a lot, you know, to transport us and our goods all around. Now we've invented technology that enables us to transport ourselves much more efficiently than relying on animals. And we're going to do the same thing with food as well.
0: Now, Paul, here's a personal question for you. How do you have a fantastic life?
1: Uh, I would say the biggest cause of my happiness, Alan, is my uh, family. So I have a wonderful wife and a dog. And if you looked at a pie chart of uh, the sources of happiness in my life, uh, they would be a very massive part of it. So I'm extremely grateful to have them in my life. And uh, I would go so far as to say that it makes it pretty fantastic.
0: Well, thank you, Paul. Here, the audience, uh, I give you Paul Shapiro, author, CEO, TEDx speaker, podcast host, and visionary for the future. If you like the show, please uh Say you liked it and please put some comments down so we can pass this on to future generations. Thank you all for listening. Have a fantastic day. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Did you know that you can get a free copy of Dr. Leica's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life? Yep. Just visit 13gpnow.ca and we'll send it right to you. That's the number 13gpnow.ca. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next week. Have a fantastic day.